Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can follow me on Twitter at ExporterTax. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, I'm excited to have Mike Erse, the former leader of PwC's U.S. international tax practice and a practicing international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services practice. Mike was the inaugural guest on our first Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast over 1 million downloads and two years ago. Mike, it's an honor to have you back to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. I uh, I feel like I need to be here every two years. <laughs> Thank you. At, at, at least, um, at least. So, so Mike, you've been a fantastic mentor of mine. You led our international tax services practice for I think six years before I took over the reins two years ago. One of the things that's really been inspiring to me, Mike, is that once you gave up that leadership role, you have just dove right back into being a international tax advisor, focused deeply on the technical issues and the things that are most relevant to our, our clients. And I think it's been an inspiration for me and, and the entire practice, just how dedicated and inspired you are. Can you talk a little bit uh, about what inspires you about what we do as international tax professionals and any advice you have for people that are interested in getting into the, the profession? I mean, really, what, what, what makes you tick and why do you enjoy this so much? Well, first of all, thank you for the nice comments. Um, I have to say that um, a lot of us were surprised when the 2017 Act just layered onto the 86 Act. So uh, the complexity of the rules is part of what drives me because I know our clients just need a lot of help. Um, there's been so much guidance issued by Treasury that, um, and given that our clients have complex businesses across the globe, uh, it's pretty challenging to apply all these rules um, to their businesses and, you know, when you can go into a company and help them understand what to do and how to comply and add value, that that's really gratifying. And on top of that, we have really, really smart people. It's, it's, it's so fun to work with partners and staff across the country and to see, you know, these budding young minds. Uh, so it's, it's, it was a privilege to, uh, to, lead the practice, but it's just as fun to work with the practice on their clients uh, all across the country. Um, I'd say, you know, for young people, there are so many opportunities um, in tax consulting, uh, given what's happening globally with tax changes, BEPS 2.0, digital taxes, all of our U.S. reform. Um, and not to mention what might happen uh, post-election. So it's it's just an ever-changing tax landscape. It's gotten more computational, much more challenging. Um, if you like digging into technical rules and like difficult challenges, working with great companies and with a lot of really smart professionals, this is the uh, profession for you. 
Yeah, I, I think that really encapsulates it, Mike. It, it's what 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 drives and, and motivates me as well. Uh, w- one comment that I will make, and I tell a lot of our you know associates and and those that are new trying to to learn all of these rules, and that when when Congress decided to do tax reform, right, as part of the the TCJA. They didn't just tear down the building and, and build a new one, right? The analogy that I say is they they took, you know, a, a building that was already a little rickety, right, and just added four new floors to the to the top of the building. And so, you know, I've, I've heard some people I've heard some people say that, well, you know, you got the TCJA, so some brand new associate can come in and they're at the same spot as a tenured partner to be able to learn all these new rules. And I really don't believe that because you have to have this foundation of, for example, we're going dive into the foreign tax credit regulations about how the limitation works and creditability. And they've just added layers and layers of, of complexity, which is arguably uh, good for the profession, but just makes things even more challenging uh, for the taxpayers that have to comply with these rules. So let's dive into the, the foreign tax credit regulations. And as the listeners of cross-border tax of cross-border tax talks know this is one of my favorite topics. I've spent most of my career in the foreign tax credit statute and and regulations. And I think I've actually lost count. I think we're on our third or fourth set of regulation packages post-TCJA related to the, the foreign tax credit. So before we dive into the latest reg set, do you have any observations on the FTC packages that we've received as a whole and Treasury's approach, knowing what a difficult task they've had? Well, first of all, you're right. There's been so many regulations issued. It's amazing. Um, The government has put out a lot of guidance and they've really tried to help taxpayers understand you know, how to interpret all these new rules. Um, it's taken three years. Uh, they are pretty much worn out, I think. Um, and this la- latest set of FTC regs is is about the end of the guidance uh, for TCJA. So, um, you know, they certainly rushed to get certain regs finalized so that they would be retroactive uh, back to the date they were proposed. And that was to cover a number of what was perceived as abusive transactions. But, um, you know, they've issued a lot of guidance in proposed form, gotten comments. I would say, you know, we probably got less of the requested comment changes than maybe taxpayers wanted. We did get some requests granted, but, um, they they did try to finalize things so that people could file returns and move on with um, how to comply. Yeah, and a, a very difficult task again for for Treasury, just given the the overall changes. Mm-hmm. So, all right, in, in in October of 2020, we received final regulations and maybe a, a surprise set of proposed regulations um, regarding a whole bunch of of new topics. That I think maybe maybe took some of us by by surprise, given the the length of these. 
but let's let's start with the the final regulations and here these is this is a dense reg package so we're really just going to cover some of the the highlights or or lowlights depending on what your perspective might be but I, I wanted to start with expense apportionment because we've spent a lot of time and it's actually been a while on the cross-border tax talks where we talked about interest expense apportionment and how that works particularly from a guilty perspective in other words we know a number of taxpayers um, whose blended rate on their earnings overseas is above the 13.125%. And so that, that are still paying U.S. tax on guilty as a result of expense apportionment from our foreign tax credit limitation rules. And we've spent some time talking about interest. Some of that was mentioned in the, in the proposed regs, but these final regs uh, we talk that are really dedicated to the stewardship expense and research and expenditures. And so those are the kind of the big three groups of expenses that generally need to be allocated to foreign source income for purposes of determining whether something can be creditable are generally interest, stewardship, and R&E. And I think we're all set with, we understand how the interest expense rules for the most part, again, there have been some tweaks to the rules, but the big changes um, with respect to how we fundamentally think about stewardship and R&E are, are really changed with these final sets of regs. Let's start with stewardship because we know that that's something that you've spent a lot of time thinking about over the course of your career. How has that changed and what are some of those, those highlights and things taxpayers should consider with respect to allocating stewardship across the various baskets for our foreign tax credit limitation? Well, uh, you're right. Um, expense apportionment is, is really critical to understand. Um, because most people have excess credits in the guilty basket. Frankly, a lot of people have excess credits in both the branch and the general basket as well. Um, and you have to remember that half the country didn't really care about the foreign tax credit limitation uh, because they had tons of royalties or 863B income. And now with guilty having such a low rate, it's pretty easy to be excess credit. Um, so. As far as stewardship goes, uh, the final regs did clarify that you have to use an asset method, but they didn't change the definition of stewardship expenses. So you really have to first start by looking at your SG&A and figuring out what is total stewardship. And that means overseeing uh, US or foreign subsidiaries. And they clarify that it also includes overseeing a, a partnership or even a disregarded entity. Once you know what's stewardship, the final regulations uh, ask you to apportion that based on an asset method. And it's basically the dash nine, you know, approach that we use for interest expense. But uh, luckily they clarified in these regulations that you look to both the foreign assets and the U.S. stock of your U.S. group affiliated members. Um, in the proposed regs, there was no you were ignoring U.S. assets and you were getting a, a strange all foreign source answer for stewardship. So they fixed that. But, it, you know, you can still over allocate uh, stewardship to foreign source income if you do not um, determine what's stewardship versus support at the at the parent level. And Interestingly, they did add an extra sentence to these regulations that lets you directly allocate stewardship to an entity or entities where you can factually determine that it relates to that entity. 
And that could be helpful if, for example, you have U.S. stewardship over a U.S. entity that only earns U.S. source income. And that would allow you to then avoid using the, you know, sort of the parent's foreign source ratio to grab some of that stewardship against foreign source income. Um, so the moral on stewardship is time studies are still, I think, very beneficial for companies to perform because you want to first identify what in, in fact is stewardship. And secondly, do you have any directly allocable stewardship that you could push, for example, to oversight of a U.S. entity? The 250 treatment that you're allowed to use for interest expense is not permitted for stewardship. So once you determine your foreign stewardship and you spread it across your foreign baskets, unfortunately, you're going to have more hitting the guilty basket because you don't get to reduce it uh, by one half of that asset under 250. Yeah, great point, Mike, an important piece of a computational element. The, the other comment that I would add to that from a computational perspective, Mike, is that you had said that, you know, in the proposed regs and that they finaled that you're going to use effectively the same methodology or similar similar methodology for allocating stewardship as, as interest expense. And to remind listeners, generally interest expense is, is allocated based on the percentage of foreign assets in, in that particular basket. So it's foreign assets over worldwide assets. What I found very interesting in the stewardship now for purpose of determining the denominator, as you said, the worldwide assets now include the U.S. stock basis that you have in each of your U.S. subsidiaries. And so right. I think about the enormous complexity that's involved with determining the basis in each of a company's U.S. subsidiaries. As we think about excess loss accounts and just the various adjustments that need to take place under the consolidated return rules, I'm not sure how many taxpayers just historically keep that number. Like if, the, if there's obviously a disposition or something, companies need to understand the tax basis of each of those respective U.S. assets. But I think one of the common themes that we've seen throughout these TCJA regulations is just more administration and complexities. Just trying to, to do the math, it's just going to create more work, uh, more work for taxpayers. Yeah, the stewardship regulations are not effective for for calendar year taxpayers until 2020. So it does affect provisions this year. But if you did studies for 2019 and before, you could have used reasonable methods under the old 861-84 regs. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, most people don't have U.S. tax basis information for the U.S. subsidiaries. And we actually reached out to Treasury and asked, do we make dash 32 adjustments to U.S. tax basis in stock? Or do we follow uh, the 9T, 12T bump? kind of approach for CFCs. And they actually said the latter made more sense to them, although it's not clear at all in these regulations. All right, so let's talk about the other big group of, of expenses that is, depending on the industry, sometimes even more important and more relevant for, for certain tax base taxpayers, and that's R&E, or sometimes referred to in our vernacular, R&D. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about those final regulations? Yeah, the, the R&D final regulations are also effective in 2020, but you can elect to apply them retroactively to post-TCJA years. And companies are going to want to model whether they want to do that, because 
the R&D regs gutted the gross income rule, uh, the gross income method. So you have to use the sales method of apportionment. Um, they kept the 50% exclusive apportionment rule, but they made it clear you can't use exclusive apportionment for Section 250 purposes. So unfortunately, despite a lot of comments, you cannot uh, use exclusive apportionment when you're computing your FIDI benefit. But again, if you step back and you say, what does these regs mean to the country? About half of the country use the gross income method and half use the gross sales method. And so for half of companies, you know, switching to the sales method is probably gonna get a worse result. Now, the rules say that R&D is allocated to gross intangible income. And that means royalties, sales of products with embedded IP, services, 367D inclusions, and that sort of thing. Um, and it doesn't include guilty or subpart F inclusions. So the R&D that you calculate under a sales method is gonna hit, hit your guilty basket, or sorry, your general basket, not your guilty basket. Um, but it can also apply to, um, you know, the branch basket, for example. So uh, I think the big change is that people who didn't use the sales method have to figure out how to apply it. Um, and you also have to just understand that it's a three-digit approach. And one of the benefits is to carve away entities that are part of a cost sharing arrangement because they don't benefit from your R&D. Um, and in some cases, you can eliminate a CFC sales if you can show they don't directly benefit from your three-digit R&D. So um, people need to take a look at the rules and see how it's affecting them and then determine whether it's better to go back and use the, these regulations in say 18 and 19 because it will draw R&D away from your guilty basket. And so if you have excess limit in general, it might be beneficial. Yeah, that's going to be a common theme that we're going to talk, we're going to continue to, to focus on throughout the course of the podcast is, is the need for modeling. And given the nature of proposed regulations and final regulations with these potentially retroactive applications and, and some of the electivity, if you will, as far as being able to apply these rules elective means that taxpayers need to model the results. I mean, it's interesting as we think about gross income versus the sales method, obviously that was election and an election that taxpayers could make. And of course, taxpayers are going to elect whatever is the most favorable to them. And so, you know, arguably some of that complexity is, is, is gone uh, with everybody having to use the sales method. That being said, there's just a whole bunch of modeling that taxpayers are going to need to do, even with respect to returns that they've already filed. So for example, 2018, to figure out if they may mm -hmm. want to go back and amend. And so just a really challenging computational ex exercise for, for taxpayers and really an opportunity for those that want to dive into the, the complexity. There may be some, some opportunities to amend to get to a more favorable result. That's right. All right. So another one of the changes and, and one of the things that we talked about on, on some of the prior podcasts are allocation and apportionment of, of foreign taxes and really a, a paradigm shift with what we commonly refer to as the dash 20 rules. 
And there were some changes, some specific changes with respect to some base differences um, with respect to, to where taxes may go. Um, again, a ton of complexity. We could probably dedicate an entire podcast just to this topic itself, but mm-hmm. can you provide just a, a couple of the highlights on the allocation apportionment of foreign taxes for, for listeners? Yeah, briefly, the, uh, the final regulations pared down what was considered a base difference. There used to be a list of seven items Two of those items were removed, and that is returns of capital and 733 distributions from a partnership to partners. Um, Those two items are now timing differences. So if you had, let's say, a Canadian entity that distributed a return of capital for U.S. purposes to the U.S., but there was a 5% withholding tax, that tax now is not a base difference. You would look to the underlying assets of that Canadian company to determine what kind of income is being generated by those assets. And so unfortunately, you're probably gonna end up with most of that credit either being guilty, which you can't use, or it might relate to 965 PTAP, which would be haircut under 965G, or it might relate to 245A income, in which case it's not creditable but it's clearly not a base difference, so it's not gonna be general basket. Um, that was um, pretty much the big change. Um, it, it begs the question, you know, or at least instructs you to avoid withholding wherever possible when you're in an exemption system, if you, or if you wanna call our system that. Well, yeah, we, we've deba- we've debated that over the course of the cross border tax talks. I know Aaron Jung had some some interesting comments on on that, and that may also be worth uh, another future cross border tax talks podcast. But one clarification on the point you made, which I think is an important one, is that you had said that if if these taxes in your Canadian example end up in the guilty basket as opposed to the general basket, the point there is is that. Many, I would say most taxpayers, I think that at least that we've dealt with are excess credit in the guilty basket. In other words, their blended, uh, a company's blended rate is at or above mm-hmm. 13.125. And generally that just is determinative based on what jurisdictions that a, a taxpayer may operate. But given the OECD averages, you know, we uh, most of those taxpayers are above the thirteen point one two five. So your your point is is that if the credits end up in the guilty basket in that Canadian example, those credits just go there to die, right? We've referred to it as the casket basket, the guilty basket, because excess credits do not carry over. And so, right. you know, before this before this law change, the 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 rules would have said that 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 withholding tax would go in the general basket where even if a company couldn't use that, they would have a 10-year carry forward. So so for for that reason, many taxpayers are, are obviously desire those credits end up in the general basket as opposed to the guilty basket where they're just simply not going to get a, a carry forward. All right. Okay. Let's move to 905C. So this is foreign tax credit redeterminations. And, and this is something that I just think in today's global environment where we see taxing authorities continuing to be more and more focused on and, and dedicating more and more resources to audits and to challenging taxpayers certain positions that 
I just see as a trend, we see more and more redeterminations that foreign tax authorities are making, particularly on U.S. multinationals uh, in income overseas. How have these 905C rules changed with respect to when there is a redetermination, whether you need to go back and amend or whether it goes into the existing pools, even though we don't call them pools? You know, There was a, a major architectural change to these foreign tax credit regulations with the TCJA. How have they updated 905C? Unfortunately, the 905C rules are complex and administratively difficult because they expanded what a foreign tax redetermination is to not just you lose an audit and you pay more foreign tax, but you also, any kind of adjustment where you, for example, blow your high tax exception or it changes your guilty 960 credit. Um, so the, the number of foreign tax redeterminations has increased. And because people operate in so many foreign countries, it's almost impossible not to have them every year somewhere and were multiple redeterminations. And as you said, because they got rid of pooling after 2017, generally, if you have a redetermination, you're going to need to amend your return to make that correction. And that's in and of itself is going to be a huge compliance burden on most taxpayers. Um, the, uh, the one election that they added in these final regulations was because uh, people still get redeterminations for pre-2018 years, you can elect to aggregate all your redeterminations in one year, which is the final toll charge year, 2017. Um, but people should take a look at whether that's um, beneficial because if you, for example, have a 2014 uh, increase in French tax, but you had subpart F that year or a dividend from France, you may want to go back and amend 2014 because you don't have a haircut like you would if you picked it up in the toll charge year. So um, just a lot more compliance and uh, tracking of, of local tax changes. That's what it means. Yeah, the, again, the the elections are a double-edged sword, right? It's great, and I think most of us, um, you know, as consultants and advisors, as well as taxpayers, love the the optionality, right? And and to be able to have these elections to make, but it's 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 more administrative, it's more administratively cumbersome to to deal with. All right, so so those are the the, the highlights, um, or I guess potential lowlights of the the final regulations, depending on what your perspective might be. Let's move to the the proposed regulations, because you know a, a number of these provisions, frankly, took me a little off guard, Mike. Um, but I, I can also understand understand Treasury's motivation with respect to to some of these proposed regulations, given the paradigm shift that we're seeing in global taxation, particularly with respect to digital tax digital taxes, digital taxation with the that we know that global minimum taxes are around the corner and then we think about potentially pillar one and a reallocation of taxing profits and what those taxes might look like so before we dive into the the creditable foreign taxes which are one of the big changes there are also some changes with respect to, to disregarded payments so let, let's start there with the proposed regs any broad comments on the proposed regs and uh, help us understand the new disregarded payment rule 
this is an area that's really complex and these proposed regs um, added a lot more types of payments that are caught by these rules. Um, so you really have to understand um, whether a disregarded payment is um, going to be something that you have to categorize either as a remittance or as a contribution or as a reattributed payment. And essentially, they clarified that more payments between disregarded entities have to be considered so that you can then determine if there's a tax on that payment, how to treat that tax and what category to put it in. So for example, if you made a distribution from a disregarded entity to its owner and the disregarded entity was just a hold co and didn't have a business, that is now covered by these rules. And you generally look through to the assets of that disregarded payor to determine how to bucket those taxes that were incurred on the payment. And again, just like in my Canadian example, that might end up treating much of the withholding as a guilty basket or maybe a PTEP 965 or partially 245 cap A um, as opposed to some other kind of um, creditable tax. So um, the, the rules are pretty complicated. They even cover, like I said, contributions. If you suffer a tax by contributing money to an, a country, uh, that's disregarded, that can, again, be caught under these rules. And then you have to apply U.S. concepts to put that tax in the right basket. All right. So let's move to determining whether something is creditable. And this has generally been an area, Mike, uh, and these are probably far and few between, that has been relatively stable throughout most of my career at least we've had the same set of regulations which we can, which you know we can't say that for many areas of the international tax regime here in the US but understandably you know given some of the global changes that I'd highlighted earlier treasury appears to have some concern and and very much focus on what is creditable including this new concept of jurisdictional nexus Talk a little bit about, about that and why that's such an important change for, for taxpayers. The, um, the creditability of taxes rules in the proposed regs are probably the most controversial because they, they were, um, they're brand new, they're sort of novel. It looks to me like a stake in the ground. Treasury's saying, look, we're not gonna necessarily give you a credit unless there's a connection between what you're doing and that country that's trying to tax you. So I think they're signaling that, you know, a, you know, a digital tax or an offshore receipts tax, sometimes countries tax you when you make a payment, let's, let's say a royalty from country X to country Y and the country assessing you withholding is country Z. Um, we call that extraterritorial withholding. Um, or certain other taxes that might appear uh, under, you know, a pillar one, for example, where there isn't necessarily agreement by the U.S. that that should be um, a taxing right by that foreign country. So I think 
the comments, particularly from the West Coast, will be very interesting on this provision uh, because uh, there, there's also rules about whether non-resident cap gains should be creditable. I think generally, if a treaty allows it, this, this rule won't affect that. But there's a lot of places that tax us on a non-resident basis where we don't have a treaty. Um, Brazil's one example. Uh, so uh, definitely, um, I think Treasury's going to get a lot of comments in this area. I absolutely agree with that, that there will certainly be a lot of comments. And to your comment, to your point on the, the West Coast, I, I, the um, implied is that this will just presumably disproportionately impact the, the tech sector because so many of, of companies in that industry do have these, as you mentioned, the offshore receipts or um, some of these uh, extraterritorial withholding taxes to deal with. All right, kind of moving along on, on the accrual of foreign taxes and the proposed regs, another big change is the revocation of the contested tax doctrine. What is that and uh, what does this mean? Well, as we've talked about, there's so many foreign audits going on and they take years to settle um, and you have to exhaust all administrative remedies. Otherwise you have potentially a voluntary tax, which would not be creditable. So. The government had a doctrine um, that said if you were to pay a contested tax while you're still fighting it, you could take a credit for that. Um, but they want you to, you know, exhaust all administrative remedies. They've now they're going to revoke that revenue ruling, and instead they're going to say if you want to take a provisional FTC for contested taxes. You can only do that if you sign an agreement with the IRS that essentially waives the statute of limitation for assertion of a voluntary tax for at least three years. And secondly, you have to give the government updates on your uh, on your case, um, the sort of uh, progress. And, you know, frankly, we think that's going to very limit the number of people that take a contested tax provisional FTC because it sort of invites a voluntary tax assertion by the government. Um, so I think in general, people are going to be limited to taking credits once these foreign audits are settled. All right. And then the last thing we wanted to, to mention in the proposed regs were some additional proposed changes to the, the research and expenditure allocation rules what what are a couple of what what does the, the the proposed reg say about those well they they actually relate to interest expense apportionment and it's this is a good item um, I think taxpayers should again model this I I would think it would help a lot of them and they should comment to the government that the rule is a good rule essentially what the rule says is that you can take uh, your R&D expense, to the extent it's still deductible before the capitalization rules come into effect, and uh, half your advertising expense. And then just for purposes of interest expense apportionment, you get to capitalize those expenses and create this notional asset. And if you think about it, most advertising that's paid for by the U.S. group is probably U.S. source expense because it's directed at U.S. customers. Um, and a lot of R&D expense is U.S. source because you have 50% exclusive apportionment. So the point here is that the assets you're creating 
is for the most part, a large US asset. And so what the treasury is doing is they're saying, you get to add that to your denominator of your 864E fraction. And that dilutes what ends up being a portion foreign under the asset method. So it should lower interest expense that goes against foreign source income, particularly the guilty basket. So that's this is a good change. One of the good changes for, for taxpayers in, in this proposed reg package. All right. Well, well, Mike, those were the kind of the key takeaways that we wanted to highlight. Again, there's just a ton more in, in both of those in those packages. So, you know, any closing comments, sort of big picture recommendations that you have for 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 taxpayers and, and general themes that uh, that people should be aware of with respect to these foreign tax credit regulations? Well, you know, I do. Um, look, I, I think that um, and, and I'm, I'm not pandering to our audience at all. Uh, I think being able to accurately model and run scenarios is so critical. And, and I'll give you some reasons why. Um, you know, as we've talked about, uh, most taxpayers have a 904 limitation. It may be just in the guilty basket, but it may be in multiple baskets. And so the foreign tax credit limitation is now uh, continues to be even more important than it ever was. And frankly, that's something most countries are gonna learn quickly if they adopt pillar two, because most of the world uses it as an exemption system, but if they start topping up low tax entities around the world to whatever the new minimum tax is, they're gonna have foreign tax credit uh, calculations to perform as well. But back to the US, um, if you think about it, if you're limited in the guilty basket or other baskets, you really need to know your interest expense that's foreign source. So that means doing those calculations correctly, taking into account this new proposed reg on advertising and R&E. Um, R&D is now sales method only, which may hurt your company compared to what you've been doing previously. And you just have to look to um, all your gross intangible income and make sure you throw uh, that R&D against the right baskets. It's going to hit general mainly, but it certainly hurts the FIDI calculation and you don't get exclusive apportionment in that calc. Um, stewardship hurts uh, all baskets, guilty, general, but it does hit 245 cap bay as well. So anywhere where you'd have a dividend or similar kind of CFC inclusion. Uh, that's where you need to know your stewardship. And we've got a new method, which is asset based. So folks need to know how that's going to affect them. You, you don't want the government to come in and do the asset method for you. You want to do it yourself and have your position documented. Um, there's all these issues about which credits to actually claim, uh, particularly when you have withholding and getting them in the right baskets, particularly on disregarded payments. Um, again, we talked about 905C and contested taxes. When you step back, um, understanding how all these rules affect you can dramatically affect what credits you get in the guilty basket or the general basket or the ranch basket. And when you layer on top of that, um, we have beat rules. 
So if you end up claiming more credits, does it throw you into B? Um, what happens if you have an acquisition and that company brings B payments that you, you know, all of a sudden have to, you know, look at your calculations and overlay those B payments on your calcs? Or what if you um, are trying to decide whether to make a high tax exception election for guilty and all of a sudden half your tested income is excluded? That's going to change what credits are in your guilty basket and whether or not you have a top up or whether or not you're limited still. So I think the, the, the message is, is that you want to be able to understand how these rules affect you. Do you want to elect any of them retroactive or not? Do you want to make any of these special elections and essentially create baseline cal calculations that either are, I'm claiming HTE for guilty or I'm not. I'm going to trigger subpart F affirmatively or I'm not. I'm in beat or I'm not. And then if something happens like a big corporate reorganization, particularly like an acquisition, you would have the ability to then create new scenarios that layer onto those baseline scenarios. And, and that's what people need so they can have an idea what, what's happening with their effective rate. Mike, you've somehow figured out how to summarize almost 60 podcasts into one three-minute dialogue. Um, it, it's, it is extraordinary the complexity that, that has been created, and some of it is, or a lot of it is, is understandable. And then the interconnectivity, I think, is, is really just the, the, the point to highlight that you know, we started this podcast talking about the foreign tax credit rules, but how this impacts the, the 245 cap A deduction, how it impacts your foreign-derived intangible income, how it impacts a, a company's beat profile, all of those things are, are interconnected, and we're going to continue to highlight that on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Mike Erse, PwC's former international tax services leader, for joining me on this podcast. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. international tax services leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks.